Maybe you've heard before the little cute phrase like it's yoga practice, not yoga perfect, or yoga is a practice, or, you know, we call it yoga practice. But how do we translate that practice on our mats off into our lives so that we can ultimately be better off for it? This uplifting and inspiring conversation is really tactile. Like there are several examples of practices that this teacher has taught in class that translate into recovery specifically. So today we're joined by Rosie Mulford, who is a teacher in Asheville, who I look up to as a sort of mentor. She's a fantastic teacher and she teaches Y12SR classes, which you may have heard of before, yoga of 12-step recovery. She also has been teaching around yoga and addiction for long before she ever did Y12SR joined that sort of movement. And so she shares her story about how she's got into the work, which I think is always uplifting and inspirational. And she's just like a ray of sunshine. So I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation. And I hope you also get something out of the several practices and um, tips that she offers just threaded throughout the episode things that you can start doing in your life today, right now, off your mat. You don't have to have some fancy setup. You can get benefit out of this stuff like right now. So first, I'd like to extend you a warm welcome to the Science of Light podcast. I'm your host, Rosemary Holbrook, and I started this podcast because I'm also in recovery myself, and I wanted to know why yoga worked so well for my own recovery, among other things. So I studied at Yoga for Trauma, Yoga for Addiction, and I love Love talking to people that bring it to real life, you know, bring the practices to real life, make them, you know, something that we can use. And Rosie is totally a perfect example of that. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hello and welcome to the Science of Light. I'm your host, Rosemary, and today I'm joined by another Rosemary. Hi, Rosie. Hello, Rosemary. So welcome. I'm super glad you're here. Would you mind starting off just by sharing um, your yoga story and or your story with recovery or how those two intertwine? I would love to. I am proud of my yoga story in particular. It's a little bit unusual. I was raised in South Florida in a place called Coconut Grove. It's in Miami. And now we're talking many years ago in the 60s which might be a dream for you. So, uh, but for me, that's when I grew up in Coconut Grove, which if you know the Grove at all, you know what an amazing time it was to be there. Um, You have to keep in mind that America was in a time of big change where women were really now coming into uh, having jobs and, you know, the whole revolution was going on. So it was um, an interesting time. Of course, as as a young child, I didn't know that. But um, in 1966, I started first grade at a private Catholic girls school called Carrollton. It's a convent of the Sacred Heart. It's in the heart of Coconut Grove. And again, you know, Rosemary, when you're when you are raised in a certain situation, you don't question it. You, you have nothing with which to compare it. So for okay. me, being in this amazing school, I never thought twice about it. And I'm going to tell you why it was so amazing. It's a 1918 
I would call it like a Spanish monastery. It's in the most beautiful building you've ever seen architecturally. It sat on many acres in Coconut Grove. And, um, you know, Florida's flat and we're typically at sea level, but this, this school sat on top of a ridge. So it was way above sea level. It was on top of this coral ridge and it overlooked Biscayne Bay. And when I tell you it was gorgeous, it was beyond anything you've ever seen. We didn't have air conditioning. You know, you'd think of a 1918 home back then, they wouldn't have had it. Um, right. And oh, it was amazing. It was so beautiful. I wish I had pictures to, to bring up to show you. But it was a quite a unique place. I'll give you one example of what was so cool about it. So all of, I guess, the bedrooms or parts of the house were converted into classrooms in 1961. So it wasn't that old by the time I had gotten there. And I remember one time we were sitting in, this is third grade, I remember it so well, our backs were to the bay, um, but it would have been acres and acres. And the teacher, Mrs. Hopgood, I still remember her well, she was delightful and she would always tell us, I hop and I'm good. And now this is at a time when we wore very strict uniforms, our hair had to be a certain way, our shoes were a certain way, this is no messing around in this school. And she says to the class, now class, I don't want you to turn anything but your heads and turn all the way around. And we turn around and there was a, a mama fox with her three or four babies. I can't remember. Yeah. So we always had cool things. We had peacocks. We had Florida panther. We had fox. We had everything you can imagine running around this campus. And then I'll give one more story about the campus just to set the stage for, for where I'm going. So when we were told it was time for P.E., we had a tunnel, which is unusual, but because of the fact that this building was so high up on a coral bluff, we would go down this staircase into a tunnel and we'd come out into this pool. Again, I didn't have an appreciation for it back then, but it's an Olympic sized swimming pool. And it had, as I recall, it was lions um, spewing water into the pool. So it was, it was quite an extraordinary thing. And that's where um, I started to learn how to swim. And that was my PE class. And then acres and acres overlooking Biscayne Bay, which was just magnificent. We had a rock garden. And so it was quite um, an experience. But at the time, as I said, I just thought this was totally normal. I, my siblings didn't go to that school. One of my sisters did, but the other three siblings went to public school. I just assumed that's how their school is too. We sat outside on a little veranda. We ate our little home brought lunches. And um, as I said, it was very strict. So my first four years there were challenging. So first through mm -hmm. fourth grade. And it was difficult for a person like me who was hyperactive. I didn't know that at the time. Um, and probably even attention deficit uh, disorder, though I was never diagnosed with that. But um, mm -hmm. to be in this full form uniform, my hair had to be pinned back in a certain way. And we had to sit in these little desks and it was so regimented. Every day we got up and we went and we set, went to chapel and we went and we said the Pledge of Allegiance and we sat down and we did our work and all that stuff. So um, unbeknownst to me until I was somewhere in my 40s, um, I didn't know this, but the school had been asking my parents to send me to a doctor and have me medicated because I was a disruption in class. And, you know, back then, it's not like today where everybody's on medicine and or you get kicked out of school. They wouldn't kick you out of the school, thank God. Um, yeah, because yeah, I think that would have been detrimental for me looking back on it. So again, I didn't understand why, but at the end of the day, 
you know, I, I sat through the regular classes, but somewhere towards the end of the day, I always had a job to do. So one of my jobs was to go walk up to Main Highway, which was just a little road that we called it Main Highway. And I would uh, wait for a bus to come that held one of the teacher's uh, young children. And I would take the child back and we'd play for the last hour of the day. So looking back on it, I imagine what they were doing was placating everybody by getting me to do something and taking me out of the classroom, which I look back on and I think that was fabulous because they, there were many other things they could have done. I think they realized mm -hmm. that I just couldn't sit that long, you know? Yeah. So, okay, we fast forward now, we go through many years and I'm in uh, ninth grade now. I'm a mess at this point. Uh, uh, at the at same school? Point, I'm in the same school. I stayed through the same school the whole time. And um, and now it's it's this very liberally run school. We're in these kind of somewhat uniforms. We have free periods all the time. We can do, go down, walk down into the Grove certain times and have a class that we make up. I mean, it's all this stuff. We had a smoking lounge. It's unbelievable. It did a, a complete turnaround. And that was appropriate for that time, that era. This is coming now into the 70s. So um, now it's 1974. And we had a lovely neighbor. Uh, this was a, quite a tight and small community at the time. Now, if I go back there, I don't know a soul, as is mm -hmm. the case for many people in, in, in little cities that expanded. But um, we had um, a neighbor named Eve Diskin. Eve Diskin was at that time the president of the American Society of Yoga. She was quite lovely. She was a hippie like the rest of us. And she taught yoga classes. So she was brought into the school. And again, I didn't put this together until years and years later. And there were a few of us that were selected to take a quote unquote yoga class from her. So she teaches us this yoga class. And then she took me aside and she said, you know, you're so good. I think you should teach yoga. <laughs> really, it, it was pre-planned, I see now, you know, but at the time I was like, yeah. wow, I'm good at something. And so um, my job became, I, I want to say somewhere around the mid-afternoon, probably the last two or three hours of school, I was released from the classroom. And I would go gather the young children from the lower school and we would walk down to Biscayne Bay. We had these little white towels and I think they had little gym shorts underneath their uniform. And we would sit at the bay, which good God, now looking back on it, I think, wow, they were letting me take their kids down to the bay. So at this point, I had already um, started experimenting with other people's medications. For instance, mm -hmm. I had a girlfriend who was taking Ritalin and she gave it to me. And I do remember very clearly saying, oh my gosh, is this what life is like? Really? It's like everything came to a halt or was slow enough that I could actually comprehend and move along with the same speed as everyone else. Up until that mm -hmm. point, everything was just flying around me in a state of chaos and disorganization. Um, and then when her when her Ritalin would run out, we always tapped in to find other people. So I was already, you know, a young person, 14. I had already started smoking pot. I think I was already experimenting with drinking alcohol and now doing other people's medication. So back to the story of yoga. I'm taking these kids down to the bay and we were doing yoga. Now, what I was doing, I have no idea. I worry about what I might have been teaching them. That went on for the remainder of my high school years. 
So the last four, three or four years anyway, I was doing this yoga thing. And honestly, I, I researched it. I kept in touch with Miss Diskin for a long time, um, but we lost touch about 10 years ago. And, I, and she may not even be on this earth anymore. I don't know. But I believe what I might have been teaching was a Shivananda thing. I, I'm not okay. certain. It was interesting though, because it was yeah. the same thing. It was only a few, you know, 10 or 11 poses. And I know we always did a shoulder stand. Everybody loved the shoulder stand. And honestly, you know, we might've done some breath work. I don't think there was any kind of spiritual aspect to it at all for me and teaching. Mm -hmm. So in a technical sense, that was the beginning of my yoga journey. Now I go on to somehow I got in college. Don't ask me how. And I finished college. <laughs> And yeah, barely. Um, I was on the uh, six or seven year track. And what'd you go to uh, school for? I have a degree in agricultural economics. And the only reason it was a default, I got to the point where mm -hmm. the school told me you, you have to declare a major. So we went through the list and just picked whatever I had a bunch <laughs> of classes. And the funny thing is, Rosemary, I, I couldn't tell you a thing about economics <laughs> or agriculture. <laughs> That's but, yeah, you know, that's you how it was. <laughs> yeah. So I, I ran through various jobs. And at this point, I was just a wild party girl. And I had um, not taken to drinking so much. And I had quit smoking pot at this time. This pot made me very paranoid. I didn't like it. And I always liked to have a sense of control. Um, and so I partook in other things. And particularly, I didn't want to drink because alcohol had so many calories and I was, I, I really had a body image thing going on. I was a ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. I was never any good at it, but I loved it. And, um, and the whole, the whole idea around ballet back then, especially was skinnier is better. So mm -hmm. a lot of my, um, addiction manifested in food and body image and maybe taking pills that would keep you from eating things like that. So drinking, and giving up drinking was actually quite easy because that was never my big problem. I mean, I would drink and I would drink to excess, but that was not a problem so much. And at this point, I was just meandering my way through life, really and truly in survival mode. And I had a decade or more where every day I cried, not just a little bit. I cried a lot. I was hiding in my room. A lot of this, I was living at home and, um, and I hid this from my parents. Even my siblings wouldn't have known about it. Uh, I thought this is just how life was. And it wasn't until I had a situation not, and my story is just like everybody else's, you know, we, we weave in and out, we hit highs and lows. And then finally something comes to you where Rami Shapiro speaks of this surrender moment where it's not a choice. You mm -hmm. don't say one day, you don't wake up and say, oh, today's the day I surrender. Life happens and surrenders you. And that's what happened to me. I had a moment one after another where everything was just becoming impossible. I, I couldn't breathe. I was having things happen to me where I was becoming paralyzed I couldn't function properly and everything was just one big fat lie. And so it actually culminated in a relationship where I was with a person who was a very heavy heroin addict and 
I saw things I had never seen before in my life. I experienced things I'd never experienced before. And most of it was from the sense of a codependency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was the classic codependent. I didn't even know it. I was doing things that you go to an Al-Anon meeting, you know, it's right there in black and white, marking the tires on the car, um, you know, putting the mileage down to see how far he was driving, following his phone calls, et cetera, et cetera, all those things that everybody talks about. So I kind of snuck in the back door. I went to an Al-Anon meeting and, um, in this Al-Anon meeting, this woman, I think I was falling asleep. I, I think at the time I was even taking sleeping medication to sleep. And I think I fell asleep in the Al-Anon meeting. And this woman comes up and says, you know, you need to go to an AA meeting is what you need. And I was like, what? So anyway, I went to an AA meeting and I was in and out quite a bit. I have a, a joke that I had a sack full of white chips that I donated back when I finally had a year of sobriety and in the 12 steps, my motto actually for my life is the 12 steps of AA saved my life and yoga showed me how to live my life. Two mm. separate things. So I find that working the 12 steps of AA is a survival mechanism to get off of any kind of substance dependency. And I mean, substance also including people, money, gambling, all that stuff, a tangible mm -hmm. thing that you can actually very easily identify. What happens after you are substance free? Well, it's great, but if you don't go a little step further and find that emotional sobriety, then you're mm -hmm. floundering. And I think yoga is what gave me the emotional and mental sobriety to completely capture life and live to its fullest. So I started teaching yoga. At Were a you doing yoga all along? In and out, in and out. And so through college, I was doing it for sure, teaching it in and out. And then I would get a job at like My Fair Lady, which you probably wouldn't know about. It was a woman's fitness group, one of the first ones. And I was teaching a stretch class. And again, all of these things where I was teaching and um, yoga were, were more the physical part. I really didn't understand the philosophy of yoga, even though I had fabulous teachers as I got older um, and, and possibly somewhere in my 30s, I started taking uh, with Jimmy Barkin down in Florida, the Barkin method. He was a student of Bikram's. Uh, not just a student, he was like his big student. And then he branched off eventually. But he would oftentimes, even though we think of Bikram and even his method, the Barkin method, as being very physical, and it is, but he was always throwing in these little tidbits. And half the time I'd be like, eh, whatever. But then I started listening and he really started opening my eyes, my heart, and my mind to the yoga philosophy and the breath and how important the breath was. Then when I moved up here, you know, back in the day, you didn't take a teacher training. Like I would never have taken a right. teacher training because I had Eve Diskin. She would just teach me what, what to do. But I said, I better take a teacher training. And so I took my first teacher training at Asheville Yoga Center about 18 years ago. And I was blown away. And I was like, oh my God, what have I been teaching all these years? 
I realized, I don't know, I feel sorry. I wish I could make a phone call and call all the people that I taught and say, guys, that wasn't it. Um, and that's part of the whole yoga journey. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, st- I took my, my final white chip was back in 19, uh, well, I was 29, so I'm 62 now. So whenever that was, um, there's 30, 32 years ago. And that's really when the whole good journey started. You know, I mean, it, it, it wasn't paved with just gold. Believe me, there were many ups and downs. But once I started seeing this whole yoga thing, so now we're fast forwarding a good 10 years. We moved up from, from South Florida. We moved up to Asheville. And I started seeing all this stuff that these incredible connections with the philosophy of the big book and AA just coming, I mean, in yoga coming together. And so for my final paper, for my teacher certification, I wrote a a paper on yoga and the 12 steps. Unbeknownst to me, Nikki Myers, about three years before that was doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just crazy to think that, uh, she and I were very parallel in a sense in, in that regard. Now, now Nikki has an, an amazing gift of being able to organize and put these things in words and, mm-hmm. and systems that are just so fabulous. As you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think we're both Y12SR leaders. And, um, and so after I wrote that, I started teaching all my classes, aligning yoga in the 12 steps. I wouldn't have said it, you know, back then, it wasn't so welcome as it is today. Right. Today, I feel yeah. as if it's so open and, and, and very many people talk about it. And I think a lot of people realize that you don't even have to be in a 12-step program in order to reap the benefits of the 12-step program. And particularly when you align it with yoga. I, I think that's just magical. I think it's to me, such a gift. And as I said, the 12 steps definitely brought me into a place where I could start to learn. Mm-hmm. Like yoga zoomed me into a place where I could learn about life and live it to its fullest. Wow. I really love how those paralleled for you and intertwined throughout. Um, and also, yeah, I, I remember I took your class for the first time a few years ago, around the time you were getting the certification and you wove it in so subtly in such a beautiful way, even to just like a regular, I think it's like power flow class. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing. And I think you're fantastic at that too. So can you talk a little bit more? Actually, in fact, since I was just in your class this morning, can you tell me a little bit more about the emotional sobriety piece that you brought up? Like, what does that mean to you? And perhaps what are some tools you think folks could use? around that. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words. You know, um, people used to say when they would leave my class, they felt as they'd been in church. And this was in the early days when I didn't really mention yoga and the 12 steps. And that's probably when you took it through the power class, because, you know, people who are coming to power yoga are not typically that interested in the philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think the power yoga people typically, again, of course, there's always exceptions, are more drawn into the physical aspect of it. And I'm all about that. I'm like, whatever pulls you in the door. So yeah. thank you for noticing that I was weaving that in. As far as the emotional sobriety, I think when we talk about being sober, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier, it's easy, in a sense, 
to say, okay, here I have a tangible thing and I want to stop partaking in that. You put it aside. I mean, it's hard work. I'm making it sound so easy, but, but the substance part of it, the physical, actual, tangible stuff is really doable because you can identify that and you can put it away and say, I'm never touching that again. But the emotional sobriety comes from a place of why we ever turned into addicts in the first place, because all of that substance abuse is simply a symptom for something much deeper. And in my opinion, it's the emotional part. And it stems from a lack of understanding your true nature. And we talked about this in class today, the true nature, and, and this is all weaved out through yoga and in a different way, it's woven into the big book too. When we don't see what we really are, we're living this false life according to what we see. So one of the greatest examples that I love, and, and this is attributed to Einstein, although a lot of people say that's not true. It's the quote where he says, if you try to teach a fish to climb a tree, he's going to think he's stupid the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what's happening with us. We're trying to navigate life based on this little tiny picture we have of ourselves. And it's not at all a true picture. Mm -hmm. So in Advaita Vedanta, we talk about Satchitananda as our true nature. So we're already this perfect, truthful, eternal, conscious, blissful being. That's what we are. We're born like that. We have everything we need. There's not a thing left out in that sense. But what happens as we start to go through life, things happen and our humanness takes over and seems to envelop or cover our blissful, beautiful entity that we really are. So we call this a cloak of ignorance or a veil of darkness comprised of ignorance. And so we have things happen in life and we react accordingly. So let's say you, uh, you're abused. So you, when you become abused, you have a certain way of cutting yourself off and it's a protection mode mm -hmm. because imagine a young person being abused in whatever form, sexual, verbal, uh, being hit, you know, anything like that. And so we create survival mechanisms and we have to, and we need that. And that's the mm -hmm. human side. But what happens is later we keep doing those same actions when we no longer need them. And so our reactions and our responses to things are from behaviors long ago, not today. So for the emotional sobriety, what happens for me anyway, is I'll be stuck on, I'm going to use the example we used in class today. I'll be stuck on having approval for a great deed that I'm going to do. So I, I want to, I seek approval from other people for my deeds. So when I clean the house, I want my husband to walk in and go, oh, wow, you cleaned. It looks beautiful today. You know, nine out of 10 times he walks in and doesn't notice it. It's not that he's lacking appreciation. It's just, it's not a big deal to him. That's my job, you know? And same thing when, when I would go and try to help people, I was always hoping to get a great response. And then everyone would say, oh, Rosie, she's such a nice person. What a good person she is. So I was addicted to those responses. And the emotional sobriety is where I don't need that response anymore. A good deed is done because it's the right thing to do. And I'm not waiting for the result of my action. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, that does. So how would you say 
what, what would be like a tip or two that you think people could use to cultivate that? Okay. So here's what I do. I have a, an ongoing list on the things that I am constantly working on. And with anything, it takes practice. It's not going to happen the first time. And that's why we have the word abhyasa in yoga. And people take it literally mean, mean practice. And, and I believe what people do is they come to class and they say, this is my abhyasa, you know, this is my practice. But really what it means is returning constantly unending for the rest of your life to a certain thing. So for instance, let's say I want to give up the idea of envy and jealousy for someone. So when I see someone has does a good thing, someone's successful, they get a raise for their job or they get a promotion or they get a job or they get married. Or for me right now, maybe it would be um, all my friends' kids are having babies. You know, I'm in the grandmother stage. And mm -hmm. instead of being jealous or envious of the fact that they're, ha they're having that, then I sit down and I say to myself, their name and what has happened. So so-and-so just got a raise I am happy that they got a raise. Good for them. And so it almost seems like a fake it till you make it thing. And in a way it is, but we need to practice first before we can actually work on that. It's like, if you were going to go run a marathon, you wouldn't just wake up one day and go run 26 miles. You would start with one mile, then two, and then three and four. So it's the same thing in this. Whatever we're trying to achieve, so I want to I want to drop my envy and my jealousy for um, for grandmothers, people who are having lots of babies now, and I'm not okay. So I, I say their name. Oh, they just had a, a grandchild. I am so happy for them. What a wonderful gift! And I keep doing that over and over again. Every single time I see somebody being virtuous and and having good luck, I say that. Now, an easier thing, I have a big problem driving. I hate it when people cut me off. I, I just, yeah, that's my big I thing. I do too. Oh yeah. my gosh. And you know, don't you feel as if the car is a yeah. great little compact mm -hmm. metaphor for life? Like we can practice so much yeah. kindness, compassion. So what I'm trying to do now when, when people are driving, instead of saying, oh, you jerk and flipping them off. I say to myself, oh, that poor guy, he probably didn't see me. Now there's a little sarcasm weaved in there, you know, but mm -hmm. I'm practicing assuming that this person isn't personally after me in the car. You know, he's not, that's part of the big ego that goes on. So I practice, I say, oh, that poor person didn't see me or that poor guy doesn't know how to drive and I'm just going to back up and let him in. And I make it a point as long as it's not going to upset traffic flow behind me of always letting somebody in before they have the chance of, you know, pushing in. Then I get to say, oh, I did it. <laughs> I but like that. Truth, yeah. But in truth, I'm yeah. trying to practice being kind in the car and, and not flip somebody off as a reaction to the way they drive. So there's yeah. many, many ways you can actually sit and practice tangibly. Okay. So let's say, take when, when you have young kids, this will be good. Yeah. For well, this is good because my toddler actually like started saying bad words because he heard me saying bad oh. words in the car. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I, kids, they will like point out all your flaws just by repeating them. You know, oh, yeah, that's what I'm experiencing. Yeah. And so you have a really big mirror right now. Yeah, <laughs> so that's great. Well, the next time you go to play a game with your, your child, 
are because one's too young to play yet that you just have yeah. to call and be right mm -hmm. so what you'll want to do is let them have a turn let them win even when you want to jump in and fix it for them and do this let them do stuff it's practicing just backing off and and allowing somebody else to have the limelight and i think motherhood is one of the best lessons for that is you really yeah. step back and let them have the limelight and and usually you want that you know you're happy to let them have the limelight and so that there's just so many places in life that you can practice that you know when um when i want to say in my mind i think a bad thought about someone oh he's a jerk i won't even let myself say that anymore so now I practice, if I do say it, I take it back. And then I, I say to myself something like, well, he's probably just a, a person who doesn't know. He's just an ignorant right. person. He doesn't have the knowledge of whatever. So I'm even trying to train my thoughts now. And thoughts are the hardest thing to train. You know, a, a really good practice, if I may, is to come up with three words that you think if you were sitting down having coffee with God, whatever you call that entity, okay? What are the three qualities that that entity would have? Okay, it's typically going to be something nice, like all loving, non-judgmental, compassionate. Okay, so you remember those three words, you write them down, you carry them with you. Every word and every action that comes from you needs to be aligned with those three words. So now the words I came up with, I created the burdens on me to behave that way, to speak that way, to act that way. Now, the hard part is the thoughts. Nobody knows your thoughts but you. So mm -hmm. finally, you get to this place in emotional sobriety where you are done with the words and the actions. I mean, you constantly practice them, but now you move into the thoughts. And that's what I'm doing now is I'm trying to think the way I think God would think or say, or act. I love that. Yeah. What so, a tall yeah. order and a, yeah, a noble goal. I love that. Yes. Uh, so thanks for sharing all that. And I love how that also kind of beautifully woven in with a lot of stuff, you know, you taught in class this morning in the Y12 SR class. So I'd love to point to out to folks that today was the first day it was offered virtually. So now folks can come join you there. Yes, I'm um, very is, excited about that. Thank you. Yeah. Is there, um, is that similar to what, I know you have an upcoming workshop, Yoga for Addiction. Yeah, at Asheville Yoga Center. Yes. Is that kind of the same stuff you'll be teaching in that or what What will you yes. be teaching in that? So I have three things going on. We've got the weekly class on Wednesdays at 8.30 at Asheville Yoga Center. However, we are doing it through the platform of Y12SR. I'm so excited about that. And then secondly, I have a six-week series on Tuesday evenings at Asheville Yoga Center, also virtual, called Breathing Underwater. And this is where we use Richard Rohr's book, Breathing Underwater, to weave ancient gospel, ancient Vedic texts, and modern-day AA into a path that takes you into this incredible place, I'm just going to say it, of happiness. It, it's just a beautiful toolbox that you leave with where we have specific things like that three things that you write down that I just talked about. We have specific tools that we use for six weeks practicing these over and over again in order to find a way to move into a place where we're not up and down and we're not so affected by all of the fluctuations mm -hmm. in life. 
And that starts right. January 10th, and that's through Asheville Yoga Center. And then the weekend of February 17th, I am offering, yes, thank you for remembering that, yoga and addiction. And that is where we'll delve into things like how to teach a class that can let you practice right then and there one thing that you can take with you. So going back to that idea of abhyasa, mm -hmm. where we think of um, practice, you know, I, I liken the class to being in uh, Ace Hardware, where you would go in and you fill your toolbox for that hour. So that's really not your practice time. That's your learning time. And then you walk out with a toolbox. Then you get to practice outside the classroom. All of these things will learn in that weekend. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited Beautiful. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you shared a really good one today too. If the, if folks want to get an idea, like um, the breath technique you shared with us today, do you mind describing that? Oh, yeah, that's so beautiful. And this is such a worthy technique for, especially if you're in the throes of feeding your desires in a physical sense. So let's say I talked about the pecan pie in my refrigerator. You know, if it were up to me, I'd eat the whole pie right then and there. And you have these moments when desires overtake you. And again, don't be hard on yourself when that happens because these things stem back deep in our evolutionary past where they were needed for survival. Again, it's that idea of we must survive. The only reason you and I are here today is that our genetic link survived for whatever reason. So these survival techniques are deeply embedded in us. And once you recognize that, then it's a little bit easier to deal with them. So here's the technique. Let's say I want that pecan pie, but I've already had five pieces as it is. So I take a breath, I visualize the pecan pie, I take a breath in and I see that breath going through the, the soft palate of my mouth all the way into my brain and then out the crown of my head. I pause at the top and you see that pecan pie right there. And in that pausing, the desire is suspended just for a moment. Then you exhale all the way down and at the very bottom of the exhale, you see that desire dissolve. It goes away. And technically, it's filled with the light of the divine. It's filled with your true nature. See, we try to fill these holes with all of these things, with food, mm. with drink, with drugs, with smoking, and with people, money, gambling, approval, my way of thinking, et cetera, et cetera. So any desire that works for, but if you can put a name to it, it's so much easier. That's this thing of working with tangible things as opposed to just these broad ideas of, yes, I want to be happy. You need to identify what it is that's making you unhappy and where you're trying to fill in. So again, it's the idea of naming the desire, breathing it in, seeing it come all the way through the crown of your head where we hold the breath in right there. Let that desire suspend, then breathe out. And at the bottom of that breath, you sit empty and you're gonna to wanna to suck in the air, but you sit with it just a moment. Let that desire dissolve and you will feel this amazing sense of goodness and love and purity and light and fullness come into you. And then you repeat that as often as you want. And I do say afterwards, just sit for a moment in stillness so you can actually feel the effects of having had that little, that little moment. That's beautiful. And I love that too. Like, like you shared the toolbox, like the practice we go and we learn that in the class, or even I find these tools show up in like a regular yoga class, even folks that aren't like specifically yes. talking about 
you know, for recovery or whatever. And then it's like, when you open the fridge, now you can remember your tool. Exactly. (laughs) That is exactly what you're looking for. We need practical things we can take with us and the breath. You've always got the breath, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so it's a beautiful, yeah, it's a beautiful way to navigate life. And it happens everywhere in the car and you can do it anywhere you are standing in line and somebody in front of you is taking forever to check out. I did that the other day in Ingalls and I really literally did my breath right there. I held the anger right there. I let it suspend. I breathed it out and it dissolved. And I was very nice to the man in front of me. (laughs) That's so nice. I love it. It's where the rubber meets the road meets the road. So I think that's awesome. So it sounds like the, your weekly class folks can definitely learn those tools every time, but then the workshop would be like mostly for teachers that want to teach others how to do this or um it is the the we the workshop in february is a 300 hour teacher training but it's open to anybody who wants to come um and the six-week workshop uh that's for everybody there's no credits offered and that's just a fun loving we come in and discuss and do asana and uh that's going to be a lot of fun. I, I highly encourage anyone who's interested to go ahead and sign up for that. Beautiful. So thanks so much for doing this work that comes from your heart, from your being. Are there any final thoughts that you would want to leave us with or like just one point you want to drive home? I would like just that? love to say, realize that you're already perfect. You're whole, you're complete. There's nothing missing. You are so worthy. I want everybody to know that each person is. And truly, all you're doing right now is carrying a heavy cloak and you can't see that. So if you can rid yourself of all of the things that make up this cloak, the anger, the envy, the pride, the jealousy, the the my way or the highway, all of that stinking thinking that we talk about, if you can remove that cloak, then you see what's underneath, which is pure, divine, whole, perfect, beautiful, even with all of your flaws. I love it. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. So I hope that conversation left you as uplifted and inspired as it did me. And I hope you take the opportunity if it ever presents itself, especially if you're interested in yoga for recovery, which I suspect most of you, if you're longtime listeners of this podcast, probably are to study with Rosie, especially if you can make it to here in Asheville. If you can't make it to Asheville, these Y12SR classes on Wednesday mornings are so this, they're like more of this podcast interview along with Asana with movement practice. So you, those are now virtual too. If you can make it to an 8.30 a.m. Eastern time or you get sent the recording and you have access to the recording for, I believe, like a day or two, 40, 24, 48 hours, something like that. So sign up. It's donation-based. It's as uplifting and inspiring and good for your body too, as this conversation was. And then if you can make it to that workshop in February, the Yoga for Addiction, I think it will be a bunch of fantastic tools. Rosie is just... She's been doing this for a long time and she's really mastered the art. And, you know, like I was saying, I used to go to her classes before she even had the certification and she was even doing it then. So she's a wonderful person to learn from. And if you want to dive deeper, I highly recommend those workshops or joining a class. You can even join it virtually now on Wednesday mornings every single week. And as the saying goes in 
I hear Nikki Myers say this a lot and other folks in that kind of area. You are always more important than your money. So if you can't afford a donation, everybody in the Y12SR world would love to see you rather than your money. But if you have a donation, if you're able, that's also a nice thing to do to sustain the work. So I hope you remember to always keep your feet on the ground, your head in the stars, and stay in the light. Until next time, friends.